So about a year ago, I asked Joseph if he wouldn't mind giving the opening Dharma talk for the new millennium. And he hesitated. In fact, he said he wasn't sure he could stay awake that long. (laughs) And he said, wouldn't it be confusing for the students to have somebody off the street (laughs) offering the talk? I said, well, Joseph, you're not exactly somebody off the street. In fact, for those of you who are new to the tradition, he is a founder of IMS, and perhaps more significantly, a founder of the whole Western Vipassana movement. And it is with, I can think of no one that I would rather have than Joseph sitting up here giving the first Dharma talk of the new millennium. Well, I hope you also are a bit awake. A little unusual to be giving a Dharma talk at this hour. When Rodney asked me a year ago, I began thinking of what would be an appropriate talk on this eve of the year 2000. Traditionally, on New Year's Eve, many people make different kinds of resolutions, New Year's resolutions. Usually, the scope is quite modest. Now, we might make the resolution to exercise more next year, you know, or to eat less. Or if we're feeling particularly spiritually inclined, we might make the resolution to meditate every day. Something that we think, in one way or another, will improve our lives. So as I was thinking of tonight's talk, I was wondering what on the eve of a new millennium would actually be able to inspire us and motivate us for the next thousand years. And there actually is something. There is one aspiration of the heart that is so noble and so vast and so worthy of cultivation that it felt supremely appropriate (coughs) to mark this evening. And even though we know (coughs) that in some way this whole notion of the millennium in the year 2000 is a mental construct. It's a mental construct coming out of a particular cultural parameter. 
even as we know this, now about this evening's event, still from within the framework of our culture and within the framework of our understanding, we can give a deep meaning and a deep reflection to this mocking of time, this turning of the wheel of time. And this aspiration that goes so deep and is so far-reaching and is so powerful is one that leads us from time to timelessness. It's one that leads us from death to deathlessness. It's one that leads us from feelings of separation and isolation to feelings of interconnectedness. And this is what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is a word from Pali and Sanskrit language. And literally it means awakened heart or enlightened mind. And unlike in English, when we separate, we use two different words for heart and mind, in many Asian languages, it's the same word. And so we might think of it as the enlightened heart-mind. That's what we're aspiring. So bodhicitta is that deep aspiration that we awaken from the dream of ignorance, from the dream of delusion, for the benefit and happiness of all beings. I see this as the ultimate New Year's resolution. The aspiration that we awaken for the benefit of all. So tonight I'd like to explore a bit on deeper levels what bodhicitta means, how it can be applied, how we can cultivate it. Because it is vast and profound. And it can be explored through the investigation of two levels which run throughout many of the Buddhist teachings. And that is the levels of relative and absolute reality. We can explore bodhicitta in its relative and absolute meaning. The relative level of bodhicitta, or the manifestation of this aspiration to live our lives for the benefit of all, the relative level of bodhicitta is compassion and compassionate action. It's that very strong feeling that we can practice and cultivate and nurture that wishes to alleviate the suffering of beings. And we call this the relative level because it deals with the concepts of beings, of self, of I, of other. That's the realm in which it works. It's the understanding that compassion and compassionate action comes from our willingness to come close to suffering, our willingness to open to it, to feel it, to be with it. 
It's that ability that gives rise to compassion. This is a very difficult practice. It's not easy to do. Because just as we don't like to open to our own pain, our own difficulties, our own suffering, we don't necessarily want to be with the pain of others. It's difficult to do this. There are very strong tendencies in the mind that pull back from the experience of pain in ourselves, with other people. So we become defended, or we withdraw from it. Sometimes people become aggressive in the face of suffering, and more often indifferent. I'd like to read a poem by Mary Oliver, who is a wonderful poet, and I hear she's been quoted this evening. She's really quite amazing. The name of this poem is Beyond the Snow Belt. Over the local stations, one by one, (coughs) announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. A land of trees, a wing upon a map a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards we watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. Until the principle of things takes root, how shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. She captures so beautifully the tendency within us all. And so the question then becomes, how can we begin to practice loving those who live two counties north or three countries south or people living across the ocean? Because except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So somehow we need to open, we need to practice opening. We do that by starting right where we are, starting with ourselves. As you've been here these last days in the meditation practice, what is it that we do? 
in meditation. We're learning to open to the fullness of our experience. And sometimes the experience is painful. It's difficult. Pain in the body, discomfort, restlessness, boredom. You know, and all the difficulties in the mind. Difficult, painful, afflictive emotions. Our practice is learning to open to the suffering. Because it's out of that opening that compassion comes forth. We learn to open to it without drowning, without getting lost, without getting caught up or identified in all of these situations. And this is the great power of mindfulness. Mindfulness allows us to do this. Some years ago, I was on a rafting trip out in the Northwest. And I didn't have much experience in whitewater rafting. And they had these uh, bigger rafts with a few people in them. And then just along for, for the fun of it, they had these inflatable kayaks. You know, one person, it's kind of like a bathtub toy, a big, you know, but there we were in the middle of the river and white water and so I thought, well, that looks like fun. <laughs> so I get into this inflatable kayak, happily paddling down the river, and suddenly I hear the guide shouting to me, you know, look out in front, there's a hole, watch out for the hole. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> What's a hole in a river? <laughs> So, I, not knowing what he was talking about, I ignored him. <laughs> and lo and behold, I found out what a hole in the river is. Because when the water spills over a rock in a certain way, it creates a little kind of whirlpool, a vortex, and you fall into it and you pull down into it. And this was a big river and a big hole. So, I go over the rock, into the hole, tumbled out of the kayak, pulled down, you know, by kind of that little whirlpool. But of course I was wearing a life jacket and the life jacket popped me back up to the surface, but it was so strong it pulled me down again. You know, and then finally I popped back up and of course it happened very quickly, but it was one of those intense moments. <laughs> but, <laughs> I came to appreciate the power of that life jacket. <laughs> because that's really what brought me to the surface. And after that, reflecting on the experience, I realized mindfulness is just like that life jacket. You know, as we fall into the hole, the vortex, the whatever it is our particular suffering might be in the moment, and we get pulled in and we get lost and we start losing it, to the degree that we can remember to be mindful, Yes, it's fear, it's anger, it's envy, it's pride, it's pain, whatever it is. If we can be mindful, that's the great power that allows us to feel it, to be with it, to open to it, not to shy away, not to be afraid of the suffering. It takes a great courage, it takes a great strength of heart. And this is our practice, we're cultivating 
that courage to be with experience even when it's difficult, even when it's suffering. The great magic mantra of Vipassana practice, and if you remember and use this mantra, it will dissolve all difficulties. And it's free. The great magic mantra of practice is, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Whatever it is that's arising, it's okay. Can I be with it? Can I feel it? Not getting lost in it, not judging, not condemning oneself for having it. It's okay. And what's so beautiful about this practice is as we learn to do this for ourselves, within ourselves, as we develop the ability to be with the pain or suffering that may arise, we find that we also then have the courage and the wisdom and the insight to be with the suffering of others. We're no longer afraid. We no longer need to withdraw. It's okay. We can be there with it. We can be there with others. And this happens on different levels. At first, it may be a genuine feeling of empathy. When we're with somebody who's in pain, in difficulty, in suffering, if we're not afraid, if we don't pull back, and we actually take the moment to stop for a moment, to stop for a moment and simply feel it, Yes, this is difficult. There is that genuine empathy with the experience of another person. On a deeper level, we go not only from the feeling of empathy, we go to the feeling of compassion. And these are two different aspects. In empathy, we're feeling the suffering of others. We're stopping for that moment and opening to it. In compassion, we're not simply feeling it, but within compassion is contained the motivation, the wish, the desire to do something about it. It's the motivation to act that characterizes compassion. And that's what gives it its power. Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so beautifully. He said, compassion is a verb. It's not just a feeling, as with empathy. Compassion is that motivation within us when we come close to suffering that moves us to try to do something, to alleviate it. It perhaps is best expressed by the question, in this situation, how can I help? In this situation, what can I do? So this active engagement with the suffering in the world becomes part of our practice. 
we start practicing responding to the needs in different ways of other living beings in whatever way is appropriate, in whatever way is possible. Now, there are so many stories of people caring, acting compassionately, and sometimes the very small ways, perhaps unregarded, unnoticed by most, maybe simple acts of kindness or generosity, or acts of forgiveness, for the people close to us, around us, who may have hurt us in some way. Simple things that are expressing that compassion. And sometimes the compassionate action is truly heroic. You know, in the most difficult, threatening situations, people sometimes rise to actions of tremendous selflessness. There are many, many examples of this, of course. One that has come to mind, sort of documentary of the life of Oscar Romero, who was the Archbishop of El Salvador in the time of the Civil War there. And as you might recall, time of tremendous violence, you know, and death squads, and it was a horrible, horrible time, tremendous suffering. And Archbishop Romero, at first, was very much part of the establishment. He was a high church official, very connected with the government, and that was the cloistered world he was living in. The documentary showed the course of his life. Through various means, slowly he became aware of the tremendous injustice the tremendous suffering that was going on in the plain, ordinary people of El Salvador. And it showed his opening to that suffering you know, over time until he became this tremendous voice for social justice and peace. And in the end, he was assassinated. You know, because the forces opposing that were so violent. Tremendous heroism. Now, that comes from this genuine, deep place of compassion, compassion for the suffering of beings. And that compassion comes forth when, whether in small ways or large ways, we're willing to come close, we're willing to open to the suffering that's there. So this is our practice. I think it's very important to realize that there's no one prescription for what we should be doing. There's no prescription for right, compassionate action. There's no hierarchy. We each respond in our own ways, from our own interests, our own talents, our own abilities. Some people might engage in the world in this way, manifesting this relative bodhicitta, this compassionate action, maybe by political action or social activism. Other people might manifest the same compassion by living secluded in a cave for their entire life, practicing for the awakening of all beings. And one is not higher than the other.
They're all different ways, depending on our own particular circumstances and interests. Great philosopher Pascal, he wrote once that most of the problems in the world could be solved if people would learn to sit quietly in a room. So you're doing your part (laughs) in solving the problems of the world. (laughs) Don't underestimate it. You know, as many of you know, we just before this retreat, we just completed the three-month retreat, which we have every year here. I was teaching the three months, but from time to time would have to go out and do various teaching gigs uh, outside. And whenever I came back, I was so tremendously inspired by what was going on in this place. Of a hundred people like you, sitting dedicated to understanding their minds and hearts. You know, and the tremendous consequences that flow from that in the world. The field of compassionate action, compassionate response, is limitless because it's the field of suffering beings. And so there's no, there's no limit to what we can do. So the question then becomes, how can we cultivate relative bodhicitta? That is, that aspiration that leads to compassionate action in the world. How can we make it stronger in ourselves? How can we nurture it? We can do it from two sides. One side is expressed very clearly in the Pali texts, which are the classical, classical Buddhist texts, where the Buddha emphasized that by taking care of oneself, and taking care here means purifying one's heart and mind, by taking care of oneself, one automatically takes care of everybody else. And if you think about this, it's so clear that this is true. As the sense of self diminishes, we become less self-centered. As we're less self-centered, naturally, easily, we become kinder, more generous, less fearful. There's less greed in the mind, less hatred in the mind, less delusion in the mind. And out of this naturally comes loving and compassionate actions. So by working on ourselves, we are also working to serve all others. This is our practice here. Some months ago, I was visiting with Ramdas, who was an old friend in long association with this place. He said something really beautiful. Most of you probably know he suffered a stroke a couple of years ago and is uh, slowly being rehabilitated in speech and in movement. 
So it was very wonderful when he was visiting the East Coast and we had a chance to talk. He said something really beautiful about the work that's done here. He said that from his perspective, and he has a wide, wide-ranging experience in compassionate action, he said that he, he really considered IMS and places like this to be the leading institutions for social change you know, in this country. And it was really beautiful, and I understood exactly what he meant. Because by learning to sit quietly in a room, that's the space, that's the place that love and compassion flow from. So it's not two separate things at all. Okay, so the first way of developing bodhicitta is by working on ourselves, by purifying our own hearts and minds of greed, of hatred, of delusion. The second way, the second perspective, practicing bodhicitta, was described by the Indian sage Shantideva, particularly in a book that he wrote called Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And this approach develops compassionate action with the practice of putting others before oneself. It's the practice of thinking of others as being more important than oneself. And the Dalai Lama, who is a great devotee of Shantideva, he manifests that quality so beautifully, you know, that feeling of kindness, of when you're with him, you have the sense that you are the most important person in the world. And that's the feeling he engenders in everybody who's with him. And it comes from this practice, this cultivation. I'd like to read what's called the seven-branched prayer. And it's the teaching of Shantideva expressing this aspiration of bodhicitta. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives, as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure, and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they need. My body and all my goods beside, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings.
That's an amazing aspiration to dedicate our lives in such a way. This is a dedication worthy of a thousand years or more. So we hear this, this total dedication to the well-being of others. We may hear this and part of us might be tremendously inspired as a possibility. That this could possibly be a way of living, of dedicating our lives. But another part of us might also feel a bit overwhelmed. I mean, this is big, <laughs> and it just feels too big for me. You know, and there is that sense. How could we ever possibly fulfill such an aspiration? Given the tremendous mix of motivation you know, within our own minds and hearts. Few of us have that level of purity. But I think we can take our lead from the Dalai Lama in this, who is always so wonderfully realistic. He says, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. <laughs> when I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So this is the Dalai Lama speaking. I cannot really pretend to practice bodhicitta, but... <laughs> So we plant the seed. Now it is a vast aspiration that we dedicate our practice and our lives to the benefit of all beings. We plant the seed, and maybe we're even planting the seed to have the aspiration. But we plant it, and we nurture it, and we water it. And slowly it grows and takes root in our lives, perhaps in very small and little ways at first. And even when our actions are not coming from that place, as often they won't be, if we have planted this seed of bodhicitta, this possibility, it becomes the reference point that illuminates those times when we're not acting from it and reminds us there might be another possibility. Even planting the seed has tremendous power. So from one side we practice the development of compassion by purifying ourselves. From the other side, 
we practice compassion by putting others before oneself. And each of these feed each other and support each other. So all of this is relative bodhicitta. The field of beings, of individuals, of selves, of how we relate to each other. It's the motivation of what the Dalai Lama called the kind heart. Absolute bodhicitta goes beyond the notion of self and other and separation altogether. Absolute bodhicitta is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. And there are many names that describe this experience of freedom, the very essence of mind, the nature of mind. It's been called Buddha nature, it's been called the unconditioned, the uncreated, the Dharmakaya, the unborn, the pure heart, But all of these names are pointing to one experience. And here we're talking about the experience of freedom, of awakening. The experience of absolute bodhicitta, of the essence of mind, is the experience in that moment of the mind that is free of any clinging, any grasping at anything at all as being self, as being I or mine. The Buddha talked about this very directly. In one very important discourse, he said, and really this is a profound instruction to us. This is not philosophy. Here the Buddha is talking and saying exactly what we should be doing. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not the body, not thoughts, not feelings, not sensations. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. There's something to take note of here. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. As we practice the recognition of this absolute bodhicitta, the empty nature of the mind, when we look for the nature of the mind, we look for it, and you look in at your own minds, where is it? Where is awareness? Is there anything to find? we see it can't be found, it can't be located. Gertrude Stein expressed this very well in describing Oakland, California, when she said, there's no there there. (laughs) I only say this on the East Coast. (laughs) The nature of the mind is a great mystery. When we look for it, there's nothing to find, and yet it contains everything. A book recently came out by Robert Kaplan, who's a mathematician, 
The name of the book is The Nothing That Is. And it's all about zero. And this is, this is the first sentence of the book, and it's a wonderful description of the nature of mind. He said, look at zero and you see nothing, but look through it and you see the world. Well, that's the mystery of consciousness. That's the mystery of our minds. There's nothing to find, and yet through it everything is seen. But this essence of mind, what we call absolute bodhicitta, is not only empty. Another quality of it is that there is an innate wakefulness to it. There is an innate wakeful awareness which characterizes it. And this innate wakefulness is present whenever the mind is free of clinging, free of fixation, free of delusion. This is what we're practicing here. An image that describes this movement from delusion to awareness, delusion to wakefulness, the image of ice and water. Ice is solid, it's frozen, it's reified. It's the mind which is contracted in clinging to something, identified with something. And you experience this many, many times in the day. You know, as you're sitting and the mind is getting lost in some train of thought or some reaction or some judgment, notice the contraction. Notice that moment of freezing. Water represents the nature of the mind that is unfrozen, that is freely flowing. This is the nature of awareness. Now what's so interesting here is that ice melted is water. So freedom is not some far off other state. Freedom is simply melting the frozen nature of the mind letting go of clinging, letting go of attachment. And in this state of openness, there is great spontaneity. Compassion flows easily. Now, if you think of the most enlightened people you know or have heard about, and here again, the Dalai Lama is a wonderful example, there are certain qualities which manifest so beautifully there's a great lightness with which he holds himself and the deepest care with which he holds others. And just a couple of stories. Some years ago, I was at a, con a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey, and there were a lot of high church prelates and, and the Dalai Lama and other Buddhist teachers and the Trappist monks at the abbey were taking the Dalai Lama around to see the abbey and the work that they did. And what they do for livelihood is they make cheese and fruitcakes, you know, and then they sell them, and that's 
so they support each other. So they're going around, and that evening the Dalai Lama was giving the talk, and he's talking about how much he appreciated seeing the monastery and what people did. And, and he said, you know, the, the monks kept offering me cheese, but I really wanted the fruitcake. And he burst out laughing. <laughs> and then he said, you know, every place we went, they gave me more cheese, and I just wanted the fruitcake. And <laughs> he was having such a good time telling this story. And it was so clear that he was just reporting on his mind without taking it seriously at all. It's just seeing the play of the mind. You know, at another conference, a, a colleague and friend, Sharon Salzberg, told me this story. She was with him at a conference someplace else. It was in a big hotel, I think, in Arizona. And the conference took place. And then the day he was leaving, instead of simply leaving, as most of us might do, he asked the hotel management to have all the staff of the hotel, you know, on every level, uh, just come down into the lobby. And he went down the line and greeted every single person who worked in the hotel with that quality of total care. Such a simple thing, but coming from such a deep place of compassion, of caring. So here is the merging of emptiness and compassion. The more selfless we are, the more we realize the empty, aware nature of mind, the more easily compassion flows. This is the relative and absolute level of bodhicitta. One very striking teaching. Your mind's nature is vivid as a flawless <coughs> piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. I'd like to close with one more teaching of the Dalai Lama, which really sums up the practice of this ultimate New Year's resolution, this aspiration that our practice and our lives be for the benefit of all beings, planting that seed within us. He said, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. This would be a wonderful understanding and a wonderful aspiration to bring in for the next thousand years. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life.
Let's sit for a few minutes. First sitting of the year 2000. And the lights are still on. There's a wonderful dedication of merit <coughs> that expresses this motivation of bodhicitta, which you can repeat to yourselves if you like. May the merit of my practice be joined together with the merit all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, present, and future. May the merit of my practice be joined together with the merit of all the virtuous, wholesome actions of the three times. <clears throat> together, may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, a liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.